Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. OSHA, what all employers must know. Hi, my name is Mike Vinoy. I'm Vice President of Marketing at Assure. Uh, and this, this is a topic that maybe if you're in the construction industry, you know exactly what OSHA is. Uh, uh, you live by those safety standards every single day. But an awful lot of employers, whether you're a white collar, a retail, a blue collar industry, so many business owners uh, don't realize they must comply with OSHA rules that they wouldn't even think of. So uh, a great guest, uh, probably the perfect guest to unpack this topic today. If you're a regular watcher of the show, you know Brian Schenker. Uh, Brian is uh, a counsel uh, at Long Island, New York office of Jackson Lewis. Uh, Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience defending class action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. And Brian regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mike. So um, I think people... Probably everybody's heard of OSHA. Like I said in the, at, the, at the opening, it, you know, if you're in the construction business, uh, you know probably rules, whether it's uh, ladders and helmets and safety equipment and harnesses and whatnot. Uh, but, but I think so many employers don't. So I think it's really important because this applies to all businesses. Um, but let's just really step back and, and make sure that we, 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 we cover this thing comprehensively. First of all, what is OSHA? How, ironically, OSHA, the acronym, is both the act and the governing agency. Bring us back to 1970 and tell us what OSHA is. Right. So in 1970, that's when you know, Congress created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And it, right, that's OSHA, also the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Uh, it's yeah. almost interchangeable how we use that. Uh, but you know, OSHA was uh, designed to ensure a, a safe and healthful work conditions uh, for workers by setting and enforcing standards uh, for the workplace by providing you know, training, outreach, and education. Uh, so you know, OSHA is an agency of the federal government. Uh, it's responsible for promoting workplace safety nationwide. And it has the authority to oversee compliance with uh, safety and health laws. Um, you know, so what does OSHA really do then? You know, so it's it's required by law to regulate the workplace hazards uh, to employee safety and health. Uh, it does this through specific regulations, uh, or you know, as we'll discuss in a little bit, the general duty clause, uh, which is you know widely applicable. 
Um, you know, they, so, so Brian, uh, it's not going to be possible to list every single use case, but maybe maybe give some examples, especially for those folks who uh, maybe watch the show regularly, but think oh, maybe this one doesn't apply to me. I don't know if should I continue watching. Give, give us some examples of traditional white collar jobs and in, in, in work environments where OSHA, OSHA absolutely still applies. Right. So look, if someone, you know, falls in the workplace and injures himself, you know, that's a potential, uh, you know, OSHA incident <clears throat> for which there, there may need to be, you know, record keeping and, you know, other remediation done. Uh, same thing with, you know, repetitive movements uh, can cause injuries at the workplace or being struck by uh, equipment. You know, this isn't necessarily, uh, you know, stuff that only applies in construction or manufacturing. Uh, you know, in offices, uh, for instance, you know, there are emergency action plans we'll discuss, which are policies uh, regarding what happens in the event of an emergency or a fire in the workplace, you know, who who decides, you know, where, where do we go? What happens? You know, what do we do with, uh, you know, uh, doors? Do we leave them open, closed? You know, things like that. Um, and yeah, as we'll get to the general duty clause, you know, even, you know, in, in an office, right? Uh, you know, there are many things that, that can, you know, become issues, right? Ergonomics uh, type things or, um, yeah, as we saw during the pandemic, you know, wearing, uh, you know, respirators, you know, face masks, things like that may be covered uh, by sure. OSHA. Uh, and so, you know, the main key, really, the overarching theme that we'll discuss today is that, you know, each business, whatever line of business you're in, whatever your workplace looks like, has some hazards. And OSHA requires, you know, businesses to identify what those hazards are and you know, take reasonable steps to eliminate those hazards or you know, reduce uh, you know, how hazardous they, they actually are. Right, right. Okay, so maybe let's, let's start kind of with the basics. So, so I, I think that covers it like, you know, hey, we're a law firm. Well, look, bad example, you, you, you know the law, but we're an architectural firm, we're an engineering firm. Uh, I mean, just think carpal tunnel typing, right? I mean, that is an actual work hazard. Uh, uh, got a squeaky front door that you got to push extra hard, and you and you fall coming through it. That's a that's a work hazard. So the this isn't just about safety helmets, harnesses, and ladders. This really is every aspect of your workplace. We won't go down this rabbit hole, uh, but this was where the government was kind of playing with some COVID restrictions in in, in contemplating. Uh, how far the, the government goes in a safe workplace, a safe work environment, as it related to the pandemic, right? So just to be clear, this affects everybody. Um, so let's maybe start with some of the beginning, the, the most remedial requirements of employers. And I, I think uh, at the top, it's probably uh, posting requirements, right? What, what are the obligations of an employer uh, to notify employees of OSHA regulations. Right, absolutely. So there are posting requirements. Uh, there's, you know, the general uh, OSHA poster, which uh, is available on OSHA's you know website. Uh, it informs workers of the protections offered by the act, uh, like 
other workplace posters like you know the federal minimum wage posters uh, it needs to be displayed in a conspicuous place where employees can view it um, it's available in several different languages uh, depending on what your workforce uh, looks like and you know in addition to that uh, posting you know th there are some other requirements for instance if you know, your organization is ever subject to a citation from OSHA, uh, then OSHA requires the company to post that uh, citation in the workplace, in a prominent place, possibly even, you know, where the incident took place, and that it needs to stay there uh, for at least three days or until, you know, the company abates the hazard. Uh, you know, those are the main posting requirements. There are other you know, record keeping requirements uh, and, you know, employees have access to certain documents. Uh, but generally, those are, you know, the things that are going to be posted uh, along with, you know, so we'll discuss, you know, the OSHA, you know, 300, 300A and 300, uh, you know, one uh, forms, you know, those are also you know, made available to employees. Brian, uh, so before, before we move on. Before we move on from posting, because I think record keeping will hit next. <clears throat> so the world is changing here, right? So I think everyone is familiar, uh, you know, as an employee, as an employer, you've come across it in your life. <clears throat> you see the, the, the safety posters uh, near a punch clock, a time clock. Maybe it's just in the general break room. Maybe it's uh, the door where employees enter a facility, right? So we've all seen that. Um, can you speak to changes or how is this evolving in, uh, in a world where workplace geography might not matter as much, right? Uh, whether it's completely virtual employees or uh, uh, flexible workplace employees, right? So right. If, if I'm an engineer, I work for an engineering firm or I'm an architect, um, we already talked about, you know, workplace hazards of tripping. Okay, probably not liable in my home, but if it's uh, typing, I'm typing all day or I'm using a mouse in a very specific way, I'm, I'm vulnerable to, say, carpal tunnel. Uh, the, whether I'm working from home, whether I'm working from uh, the office, I, I will probably get to this. I'm assuming it's something that the employer still must notify the employee. How does the posting requirement work in that kind of a scenario? Yeah, absolutely. Re remote work is uh, changing the way we really think about uh, these posting requirements, you know, not just for OSHA, but for other ones. So, uh, you know, I think the tried and true method of posting the physical copy of the poster, you know, in the workplace, like the break room, still advisable. But in addition to that, uh, what is often uh, a good best practice is to email uh, these posters to employees at the outset of employment, right? They're, most of these, uh, you know, most of these forms are either readily available online or, you know, available through, you know, Assure is your payroll provider or HR service, you know, can provide them. So you have these electronically. Uh, and especially for remote workers, but even maybe for you know everyone, just as a good reminder of, you know, here's here's these documents. There's a reason they're they're required postings because they give employees uh, pertinent information on certain protections and obligations. So yeah, emailing them. Uh, I've also seen you know companies 
uh, go another step and also post them on you know their uh, internal you know intranet uh, so they're available there uh, yeah. but really you know these are things where the more you put it out there you know that just shows your company's good faith and uh, your efforts to comply so you really can't overdo it with the notices say say more about that so the law requires the employer to post how this this goes into gray area almost immediately i would assume because you can't create a law that covers every single unique facet of every workspace whether whether it's lighting or access and wall of it. i mean where do you put things so so what what is the bare minimum legal requirement for posting. So, so again, if we're talking about actual, you know, postings about, you know, hazards in the workplace, um, as opposed to this general poster, you know, then, right, for instance, you know, if we talk about, say, you know, hazardous materials, right, then they, OSHA has, you know, certain standards uh, that may be applicable you know, to those, you know, that, you know, the hazardous uh, chemical that's coming in needs to, you know, have identified on it, you know, the ingredients, what the actual hazards are, uh, you know, various things like that. So, right, in, additional, in addition to the general posting requirements, uh, depending on the industry that a company is in and depending on what the hazards are, um, you know, it may require you know, other postings, like, like I said, for hazardous materials or for, you know, certain machinery, right? You, there might be certain uh, information that needs to be, you know, posted on a machine, you know, identifying, you know, certain information about, you know, use or potential uh, misuse or hazards. So, you know, those are things where, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, every individual, you know, company and, you know, the hazards at each company are going to be different. And this kind of, you know, also brings us back to that, uh, you know, general duty clause where, uh, you know, that requires every company to furnish employment and a place of employment that's free from recognized hazards that are likely to cause, you know, death or serious phys physical harm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to comply with the safety and health standards uh, under the act. So, you know, to take affirmative steps and, you know, post things around the workplace, um, you know, is something that, you know, employers should be looking to do, right? I mean, the first step is obviously to, you know, recognize what the key, what, what the hazards are, right? That's the key to this, you know, to the company's uh, general obligations under OSHA. Um, and then the question is, you know, for this general duty clause for things in the workplace that might not be covered by one of the industry standards, it's really up to the company then to, you know, recognize the hazard and determine, you know, the means of, you know, correcting that uh, and, you know, how to reduce any, you know, potential hazard that exists. And so absolutely, you know, depending on, you know, even outside of the required postings, you know, that, that may include, you know, other postings around the workplace about, right, you know, you know, for instance, I can think of a restaurant, right? You have a door that goes into the kitchen uh, and it swings both ways, right? So people could be coming in or out there. You know, maybe that's a hazard, right? Someone could get slammed in the face by that door if someone's coming through at the same time. 
maybe there needs to be steps and, you know, a notice next to the door saying, you know, watch out, you know, so, something yeah. like that. So the hazards for each workplace are so different. Uh, and OSHA requires employers to really do an assessment of what those are. And yeah, you know, posting around the workplace about those hazards is certainly one of the many things employers, you know, can do because you want your employees to understand what the hazards are so that, you know, they can take steps and the company can take steps to protect them. Brian, what about, um, so I got two, two threads going in my head here, I guess. The first one we talked about, like remote employees, is it safe to say, you know, one of the, one of the maddening things we talk about on this show all the time is that in one way, HR laws are pretty black and white. FLSA is black and white. OSHA, the, the way the laws are written are black and white, but the way they get implemented and measured, quantified and inspected, it's very nuanced, right? <clears throat> so on one hand, there's minimum requirements. And I think you, you did a good job explaining how it's, it's not as simple as what are the minimum requirements because it's going to depend on what are the requirements based on what the hazards are, chemicals versus space versus whatever. Um, but it, it's, it, it's safe to say that <clears throat> like if, if, if you get investigated, so some, an employee has an accident, they report, they get a lawyer, they sue, and you uh, uh, be, become inspected and audited by OSHA, human beings get involved, right? And there's gonna be a human being uh, employer, there's a human being judge, there's a human being attorneys, and good faith ma matters a lot here, right? So if you can say, hey, it's a remote employee, but you know, it's in our ha employee handbook. It's part of our onboarding process. Let me show you what that looks like. Here's the time date stamp that they acknowledge that they received it or even a signature that they received it. We put it in the break room here and they don't come in here very often, but it's also on the back door and it's also on our intranet. And just the, without being obnoxious, the more you can demonstrate a good faith effort, that, that means an awful lot, doesn't it? Absolutely. So. Uh, you know, we'll discuss the, the, uh, the fines and, you know, the penalties that are available. They are large, uh, you know, especially for, you know, more serious, uh, you know, and willful and repeat violations, you know, can be, are in the six figures potentially. Uh, and those, you know, those are maximum, but one of the things that OSHA will take a look at when, you know, the, uh, they are determining the size of a penalty is right the the good faith uh, uh you know efforts of the employer uh you know to comply so you know in addition to looking at the gravity of the violation and you know history of previous ones you know good faith exhibited by the company is very important um you know so that means you know a company that ignores osha regardless of what industry and then has uh, a violation right you're not going to be able to show good faith, but you know, if you as a company you've gone through and you've assessed the workplace, tried to determine what the hazards are, uh, you're aware of, you know, the hazards that are generally applicable to your industry and, you know, you've tried to lessen those, you know, that's something that will, uh, you know, be considered. Um, you know, obviously it's difficult to avoid or remove every single hazard. Uh, and that's why, you know, a lot of things like, you know, for instance, you know, 
uh, personal protective equipment, you know, and I'm not speaking about that in, in with respect to, you know, COVID, but more towards, you know, other, uh, you know, workplace issues, right? That, you know, things like that are almost seen as, you know, a last resort uh, for, for safety, right? To protect the eyes, face, you know, from, you know, chemicals or heat or, you know, material or debris. Um, and that the company should be looking at, you know, other proactive ways to, you know, limit the, you know, those hazards. Uh, and so, you know, OSHA will, will look at these things. So uh, that kind of brings me to, you know, when, you know, so there are a variety of ways that, you know, an OSHA matter can, can, you know, begin, uh, you know, really, you know, triggering events can be a severe injury or illness in the workplace or, an anonymous complaint to OSHA or, you know, or referral from another, you know, federal or state agency. Uh, there are also, you know, targeted inspections on certain, you know, high hazard industries like construction or manufacturing. Uh, and, you know, that OSHA inspector is going to come into your business, uh, usually with no advance notice. And, you know, they're going to walk through your, your place of employment, your, the workplace, just like the company already should have done. And they're not only going to identify hazards applicable to, you know, maybe whatever that injury is, but if there are hazards they see in plain view that have not been addressed by the company, uh, right? I'm thinking about, you know, look, let's talk about you know, an office. Maybe there's wiring, there's exposed wiring or, you know, it, it could be, you know, a whole host of things that you mentioned, you know, a door that, you know, a heavy door that's not working properly, right? Those are hazards uh, that will be identified and, you know, can then become part of, you know, the, the penalties. So for employers to, you know, turn a blind eye towards these things, when OSHA eventually comes to your, your workplace, they will identify these things. And then, right, whether you've shown good faith, that, that's going to be a big question, right? So proactively addressing these things, you know, we, we can't avoid all accidents from happening, right? That, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can show that it's something you've, you've taken care to, to try to prevent. Brian, we've, we've talked many times about how you can't contract around the law. So, for example, you know, if more than 40 hours a week is overtime, according to FLSA, you couldn't make a side agreement with an employee to work 80 hours one week and none the next, and there would be no overtime, right? So you, you, don't, you don't get to make contracts outside the law. How would it work? Um, so let's say you've posted, uh, he, you know, here's the hazardous uh, situation. Here are, here are the hazards. Uh, here are the safety protocols, but the employee simply ignores, whether whether accidentally or willfully, they just simply don't, they, they don't heed the warnings, the signs, the guidance. Um, what does this, how does this fall under OSHA versus say just civil action uh, of, of a disobedient employee, a non-compliant employee? Right. So, you know, obviously, you know, one, you know, my first response to that is, you know, managers, supervisors should be on the lookout for this, right? If, if you as an employer require, you know, certain employees to wear, you know, I, you know, goggles or something yeah. like that, or, uh, you know, take 
certain steps, you know, for instance, you know, in a salon, you know, wearing, you know, glove, you know, rubber latex gloves when you're working with certain chemicals, you know, if, if as an employer, you should, there should be some monitoring of that, right? That one of the elements of, you know, uh, preventing these types of hazards is oversight, right? So we don't say, you know, in a, in a, you know, the easiest example is in manufacturing, right? We don't just send all the employees out to the uh, manufacturing facility, say, yeah, we've trained you, now go do it. You know, the supervisor's gonna sit in their offices and wait till the bell rings and make sure you've done all your work, right? No, the supervision should be out there. Uh, you know, supervisors should be, you know, ensuring that employees are following protocol. Uh, so again, you, we can't control all situations. If employees are, you know, just ignoring these and, you know, an accident happens, then obviously there can be a factual defense to the claim, you know, by the, uh, from OSHA, you know, by the employer that, hey, we've taken precautions. We've, you know, complied with yeah. industry standards and, you know, our general duty standards. And in this instance, you know, despite our supervision, this employee you know, took off her, her, her latex gloves and, you know, it was, you know, we, we can't be, you know, have eyes on them 24 seven. So, you know, you would, you know, argue that it's, it's not the employer's, uh, uh, you know, the hazard that, you know, wasn't uh, identified by the employer that, you know, caused this, uh, you know, serious harm. Uh, so, you know, there are, you know, you can contest these, you know, OSHA violations, uh, certainly, and, you know, that, that might be a, a basis, but uh, I think, you know, employers shouldn't just feel that, you know, I've put something in a, a policy, I've right. done my job, you know, I've That's posted a warning, uh, you know, at that entrance, I've done my job, uh, you know, if there are very clear instances of, you know, employees not complying or, you know, just ignoring those things, you know, the company you know, should be aware of those and take action. Yeah. If you if you have the sign that says boldly, safety glasses must be worn at all times beyond this line. Okay, great. Maybe that's an OSHA requirement, but you're not off the hook. I mean, a judge or uh, an inspector is not going to let you off the hook if there's clear documentation uh, and, and evidence that supervisors don't call you out in punish or her or hold people accountable to actually doing it. Right. So the sign in of itself, right. if, if like you said, you can't watch everybody 24 seven, if somebody had their glasses off, they get injured. Okay. You probably, you'll probably be okay. Um, uh, but if you have other employees who are going to testify uh, or God forbid, there's video <laughs> evidence of, you know, supervisors walking around, not holding people accountable to always having their safety glasses on. I mean, you may as well throw the sign away at that point, right? You're, you're on the hook to, it's not just. Absolutely. Posting. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's I, not I think that a posting also, requirement. Yeah. You have to live it. You have to demonstrate right. this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that goes toward, you know, training and education of, of the workers too, right? That, uh, you know, OSHA has some specific uh, training requirements for, you know, certain industries or circumstances. Uh, you know, some of the more, more widely applicable ones, you know, we'll discuss, you know, emergency action plans. 
uh, you know, every every company should have an emergency action plan, and you know, tr- employees should be trained, you know, how to assist or what to do, you know, to affect an orderly evacuation of other workers. Um, you know, let, hazardous let, waste or an emergency. Yeah, let, let, let's do that because, and I'm looking at notes here, the, the buckets that I wanted to hit here, um, and I think we'll come yeah. back to record keeping as one of the last ones. We'll talk penalties and, and record keeping last, but it's the emergency action plan and training and education. And I think these two things kind of are intertwined. So so whichever one you want to pick first there. Yeah, so why, why don't we speak about uh, emergency action plans? Because, okay. you know, this is something that, you know, may be overlooked by, you know, a lot of businesses uh, and, you know, each you know business should have, we'll call it an EAP, an emergency action plan. So uh, an EAP is a, a written document required by OSHA standards. Uh, the purpose of it is to facilitate and organize employer and employee actions during a workplace emergency. Right. It, it basically describes how employees should respond to different types of emergencies uh, that take into account you know, the employer's specific you know, work site layout, you know, structural features, emergency systems. You know, it's very particular to your your you know, your operations and what that looks yeah. like. Uh, generally, you know, in terms of putting an EAP together, you you're, you know, uh, an employer is probably, you know, it's probably recommended to not just include management, but include employees too in the planning process, because this is going to be applicable to employees. They, their, their viewpoint may be helpful as well here. Uh, so yeah. there are some, you know, minimum requirements for, an, uh, for this EAP, right? Uh, Brian, and, and again, EAP, what are we talking about? We're talking about. Yeah. Is, is the EAP, does it need to be a standalone document that is reviewed? Can it be just part of the employee handbook? It can it can be part of that if it's part of a handbook. I, I would even have it as a separate section, just to you know, separate set of pages, you know, cut out of there, just because it, it is so important and affects safety. I mean, this is something that, in the event of a fire, an explosion, yeah. um, you know, depending on you know, you know, leaking of hazardous materials, you know, it, it's going to contemplate these things and. You know, it's something you don't want hidden on page, you know, 75 of the handbook. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's good to kind of be, you know, a separate thing just so that, you know, employees are aware of it and that it's, you know, something that they do review. Um, and look, it's something that, you know, if you're like the office where I'm in here, you know, there are, you know, fire uh, drills every once in a while and you don't think about it, but the way you operate when there's a fire drill is according to the EAP, right? You go and meet in a certain location, you know, perhaps employees are told told to close doors, turn off machinery. So, you know, again, the minimum requirements, right? So that, you know, it's going to set the means of reporting, you know, fires or other emergencies. Yeah. That's pretty simple these days. You know, we're calling 911, you know, pulling a fire alarm, you know, easy enough. Uh, where it really gets into it, right, the evacuation procedures and escape routes. So employees you know, should understand, you know, who's authorized to order an evacuation, right? A lot of uh, businesses will have kind of a, you know, a, a, a marshal or a fire marshal, you know, within the company that, you know, they're the ones that are responsible for telling, all right, it's time to evacuate. 
Um, yep. And that person, you know, should know what are the conditions, what are the circumstances in which we will evacuate um, and what routes we're going to take. Uh, like I said, you know, there might be requirements to close doors, turn off equipment, you know, shut windows. You know, certainly, you know, if there's a fire and you have machinery that, you know, could be left on and potentially injure first responders, the EAP should establish that those machines should be turned off in the event of a fire, right? And yeah, so Brennan, um, there's probably some people that were, will be thinking, okay, you know, we, we, we work with hazardous chemicals. Here's the, here's, the, here's the clear EAP action plan, employee action plan. Um, you know, uh, somebody falls off the ladder, they, the a harness breaks. But I, I, we're going to talk about uh, penalties and in, 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 uh, consequences of not following at the, I want to wrap on that topic. But just something as simple like a fire. So like we're a, you're a software company. You're, you, you, this is white collar employees, and you're like, why does this apply to me? Do I re, do I really need uh, an uh, emergency action plan and EAP uh, just in case there's a fire? Obviously, everybody just knows to run for the exits or, or whatever, right? But what's we already know one bad thing happened. There's a fire, <laughs> which is pretty bad, right? Um, but what bad thing happens if I don't have an EAP in place if that tragic event happens? Right. No, great question. So, right, let's say there's a fire and in the midst of that, you know, an employee gets left behind. Maybe someone's uh, in a remote location where they don't hear the alarm system or uh you know look you're not able to timely find everyone and you know may maybe people don't know where to report to um you know there there are problems right so that's why you know one of the things that that is required in eap is you know a procedure for accounting for all employees in an evacuation right because you know let's say there is that you know there is a fire right well, we don't, there might be an employee who is still stuck in the building. Maybe their way of, you know, egress is blocked because uh, of, you know, the, the fire. And if you don't have a, a procedure for everyone to gather at a location and someone to identify who's here and who is not here, you know, when the fire company comes, they're going to think, oh, we, we have a fire to put out. This is not a rescue. Maybe it is a rescue situation because yeah. there's an employee left behind. And now, you know, and this can apply to a simple office, right? Where, you know, you need to have that ability to tell them, hey, we can't find, you know, Jane Doe. We saw, you know, we, she's here. We don't know where she is, you know, you know, or here's the last location we know about. But you won't be able to give that information to, you know, emergency personnel if, everyone's just scattered and you have no procedure for identifying, um, you know, that everyone has been evacuated. Uh, yeah. Another thing that's not required, but certainly in your IT scenario, uh, it's something that, you know, EAPs can consider and include is, uh, you know, secure or offsite locations to, you know, for, for records. So that, that could be both paper or electronic, right? But if, if a company stores all originals at, in one place and there's a fire, what happens if, if those are, you know, if those are burned, we have no backups, right? So mm -hmm. some of these procedures are not just for the safety of the, you know, the employees, but 
for the business, right? If we haven't considered, you know, if your you know emergency contact list is in the office and there's a fire, well, how is someone accessing that once you're all outside and you can't get back in and someone needs to contact someone's spouse that, you know, so-and-so is, you know, just been, you know, gone to the hospital, right? So uh, a lot of these things are, if you don't plan for it, it's too late, you know, it, you know it, because there are a lot of things that yeah. can go wrong, right. uh, but having the EAP and established procedures really you can limit uh, what those are and you know, a, put in those controls. And that's a pretty and, common- and again, you know, talking about penalties, right? You know, you, yeah. you don't act, you don't have this, someone gets injured, you know, that's going to be, a, you know, a, a big factor. Right. I mean, it common, common theme we talk about, it's like, uh, there's the compliance part of HR laws, uh, uh, for example, you know, OSHA requirements. Um, generally speaking, and obviously this stuff, and especially the modern world kind of delves in the to the to the political realm, um, where maybe you don't always love every single law. Even if you agree with every single law, it can be overwhelming to keep up with it all. But maybe just as employers, just to be thinking, what's the spirit of the law, right? Whether it's overtime, whether it's minimum wage, uh, whether it's leave requirements, whether it's uh, workplace safety, um, even if it, no matter how frustrated you get, I would just coach people, what, what's the intent of the law? The intent is to provide a safe work, workplace. And by the way, if you do these things, it really is just kind of considered best practices. So if OSHA, if, if OSHA didn't exist, you would still want, you know, a good plan when the, if it, what happens if a tornado hits, what happens if there's a fire, what happens if such and such scenario happens? These are just all really good practices anyway. Now, if you're a big company and you got uh, some operations folks, some safety folks, maybe this is what they do, uh, no big deal. If you're a small business and you're trying to just scrap out a living, you're trying to survive and, and grow your business on super lean margins, um, and this is falls to you, you know, after you put the kids go to, to, to bed at night because you got your day job serving customers, this can be really, really hard. But maybe just the coaching is all this stuff really is best practices in running a business. Did, am I oversimplifying that, Brian? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, just if we consider the statistics, right? I mean, you know, uh, I think in 2021, there were 2.6 million non-fatal workplace injuries and illnesses reported wow. by private employers. You know, there in 20, there were over 5,000 workplace fatalities in 2021. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there are a lot of injuries, luckily, uh, you know, fewer fatalities, but that's a very, you know, substantial number. And, and so, right. I mean, even if you're an employer not thinking about compliance with OSHA, again, you should, as we've I, you know, said, it, it applies to all, you know, all employers. Um, if you, you know, just caring about the safety of your employees is, should be enough that you're going to take steps to, to reduce these types of hazards in the workplace, have these plans, and you know, really put your you know workers in the best position to be safe. And again, yeah. it, you know, for those who might not be considered about safety and are worried about the bottom line, you know, look, workers who get injured are missing work, which affects your bottom line too. So really, 
no matter yeah. how you look at this, uh, from the human aspect to the monetary aspect to the legal compliance aspect, there's, you know, lots and lots of reasons to take it seriously. And for employers who may have not considered that OSHA applies to them, you know, let this be an opportunity to, you know, take stock, uh, you know, under start reading things, you know, reach out to professionals, figure out how it applies to your workplace, uh, how, how you, you might have hazards you haven't even considered and what steps you, you should really take to protect your workers. So, Brian, we talked about the requirements to post. So all employers, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter. All employers must publicly post uh, uh, the, the safety requirements. You can hop on. You know, we provide them to uh, for our clients, uh, our, our, our HR services, compliance clients. But you can get them on the OSHA website. Um, you you got to post. But we also talk that you have to then live that out. So. If the if you have a hazard, the safety goggles must be required at all times. Then you can't let people walk around and not be held to account. So um, I'm assuming these uh, uh, emergency action plans, the EAPs, it's the same thing, right? So here's here's the EAP. You still have to enforce it. I think that's a good segue then into training. What a and I'm assuming we're gonna there's a, a gigantic maybe complete overlap between best practice to run a business anyway, and then training on from an OSHA requirement. Let's start with a requirement. What, is, what does OSHA require by law uh, the employers must train their employees on? Right, so training is going to be dependent on the company's industry and really, you know, yeah. the circumstances of, you know, what the workers are doing. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the EAPs, that requires uh, training to employees, it's not just a developable, you know, a developable plan and stored away for that, that rainy day. No, it's something that employees should be trained on. Uh, another, you know, widely applicable one is, uh, uh, you know, personal protective equipment, as I mentioned, PPE. Employers need to train employees who are required to wear PPE, PPE on, you know, how to wear them, you know, how, how it should be worn, right? You know, uh, there might be you know, for instance, a workplace that has, you know, dust and debris, right? We might have, uh, you know, a, a mask that's required, right? Now, if an employee is wearing that, you know, to cover their mouth and not their nose, it's ineffective, right? So there should be training on, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I kind of think of uh, when we're on a, an airplane and they're telling us, you know, here's a seatbelt, here's how to put it on, here's an oxygen mask, here's how to put it on. You know, yes, break it down to the very simple things right. that, you know, again, nothing is too basic here. You know, this is your PPE. This is how we wear it. This is when you're going to wear it. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, hazardous waste operations. Um, you know, there's a hazard communication standard, right? So this is, you know, educating employees about the hazards. So, uh, you know, the, a lot of workplaces have, you know, chemicals that pose, you know, a wide range of health hazards, you know, from, you know, skin irritation, uh, you know, to, you know, being carcinogens, to, you know, being even physical hazards, like, you know, flammability or corrosion or reactivity between chemicals. And so, you know, OSHA has this communi hazard communication standard uh, that ensures that, um, you know, all hazards of chemicals that are basically, you know, in the workplace 
uh, are conveyed to the employees. So, you know, containers will be labeled, you know, there might even be pictograms uh, and hazard statements, you know, precautionary statements. Um, you know, there's a requirement to have a safety data sheet for these hazardous chemicals that uh, among other things, it tells you, you know, what is this product? What, what hazards, you know, can, you know, are identified that it can cause? What are the ingredients? You know, if there's exposure, what are the first aid measures? Uh, what are the firefighting measures? What are the you know recommendations for handling and storage, right? So those are actual things that the company is putting on these you know containers or you know essentially you know for these hazards, so that you know employees are aware of what they're working with and they know uh, you know how to deal with it. And so you know OSHA requires an effective training program then no. uh, to be conducted for all you know, employees that could potentially be exposed to these chemicals. So, you know, there are things and like the story's that. The same uh, here is that stores the same here as it was with posting, right? It's like, um, there's a minimum requirement to train. Is, am I safe in saying that the law doesn't get so specific that it prescribes exactly how the training occurs, but probably some minimum level of effectiveness or, or whatever. And so, the coaching to employers is simply more is better. Uh, the more you can demonstrate that you've thought about this thoroughly, you provide lots of opportunities, um, more than just opportunities, you've held some type of accountability where you some type of auditability that people have gone through training. Uh, is it as simple as thinking uh, more is better or are there some, some, and maybe I'm starting to tip into record keeping, what are there record keeping requirements of this training to make sure that I'm safe as from a compliance perspective as an employer? Right. So, yeah, I think on those points. So for some industries and some types of hazards, uh, OSHA had, you know, there are a variety of OSHA, you know, safety and health standards, you know, they can be found on the website and, some are for you know marine businesses. Some are for construction, manufacturing, uh, has hazardous you know chemicals. Uh, so some of those do you know require you know certain you know training or certain communications. Um, but and to answer you know the second question, you know sometimes it is more open ended, uh, and it's more dictated by your own workplace and what you know the training might need to be for that. And then, yes, as to documentation, you know, this goes under a category of, you know, almost all things, uh, you know, you know, employment related that it should absolutely be documented uh, who attended the training when it was, you know, if there's, you know, a slideshow or some outline for the training, you know, keep that because remember, you know, one day OSHA can knock at your door unexpectedly and you want to be able to show that, you know, you've taken, uh, you know, steps to reduce risk. Uh, and so, yeah, you would absolutely want to show that that employees have undergone, you know, that training or, you know, other you know, educational efforts. What other record keeping requirements does OSHA uh, put on employers, Brian? Sure. Great question. So the 
when we think of record keeping, there, there are three OSHA forms that kind of form the core basis of uh, OSHA required you know, records. Um, there's the OSHA form 300, which is a log of work-related injuries. Uh, there's the form 300A, which is a summary uh, sheet of those work-related injuries. And then there's the form 301, which is essentially the, you know, an incident, an injury incident report. Uh, if you're interested in seeing what any of these forms look like, they're all available on uh, OSHA's website. Uh, and, you know, each of these forms has some, you know, specific requirements. So, uh, you know, form 300 is kind of that, that log, the workplace log where it's not so detailed, but it contains information uh, about recordable injuries uh, or illnesses that have occurred uh, that are work-related. So just to break that down, you know, we're not recording every injury or illness on this log. There's a couple requirements in order for a company to be required to, to put it in. So number one, we're mostly talking about companies here with, with some exceptions that have 10 or more employees. Um, so again, this is very widely applicable, uh, you know, applies to offices as it does to, you know, manufacturing and construction. Uh, but, it, you know, if an injury is workplace related and subject to this, if the work environment caused or contributed to the injury um, or significantly aggravated a pre-existing injury. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be determined on a case by case basis, uh, you know, and, and it's really a more likely than, than not standard, right? Is, is it more likely than not that the work environment caused or contributed to, to this injury. Um, and then so you know, ultimately who decides that? Is it, is, is it, is it a court so, of law? You know, is it a, a Go ahead. It, it's generally going to be an OSHA administrative law judge, right? If there's a, you know, a, a complaint or, you know, an investigation uh, by OSHA and they have some findings, typically the way it starts is that you know, there will first be, you know, it'll first go before an administrative law judge at OSHA. And then there are review, there is potential review of that. There's one potential review that's still within the OSHA agency, uh, or review can be sought in a federal court uh, of the OSHA determination. So, right, it'll be initially determined by OSHA if it's, uh, you know, workplace related. But Again, you know, when we're when an employer is deciding whether or not to put it on this form, you know, they're deciding uh, based on, you know, the guidance from OSHA. Uh, and so it then becomes an issue if, you know, it's a recordable injury that, you know, has not been recorded. Um, Brad, tell me if I'm going again, down. You know, it's not just that it's. No, tell, no, go ahead. tell me if I'm going down an unnecessary rabbit hole, but I would think that some it's probably not always black and white. Like if, if the employee is walking across the shop floor, they slip and fall and they turn an ankle or break a leg. Okay. It's, it's obvious it was in the workplace, but something that is, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's an allergy. An employee says, Hey, I think there's mold in the air. Uh, and I'm allergic to mold. You're, you're not providing a safe and work environment, but nobody else manifests this. Maybe as the employer, I think this person's, you know, manufacturing a little bit of a scenario or I'm, I'm sure there's types of 
injuries that like a, like maybe like a stress fracture that happens slowly over time and there's it's not crystal clear that this came maybe this is because you play softball in a softball league not from what your work environment uh, how how should employers be thinking about this on what to record what to not record yeah so no great point and you're right that there is some you know factual analysis required i mean you know some some companies think that well if it's uh, a workers comp injury then it's recordable under osha uh, but it's it's not, you know, OSHA has this different definition. Um, and I'll, I'll just note that. So it needs to be workplace caused or, you know, contributed by the, the workplace. And it also needs to be a serious, uh, you know, a recordable injury, which means it results in death, missed work, restricted work, you know, transfer to another job or, sure. you know, me medical treatment beyond first aid or, you know, loss of consciousness or, okay. or other significant injury. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is, uh, you know, it is something that if unsure, you know, a company should seek guidance, uh, you know, either from an HR professional or an attorney, because, you know, it's not just this OSHA 300 log, they are then going to have to fill out, you know, this incident, essentially, you know, the 301 form, which is an incident report and contains, you know, information about the treatment uh, and what occurred with the, the employee and the circumstances in the workplace, you know, right before the injury occurred. Uh, so, you know, it, it does create, you know, a, a, you know, compliance, you know, with, with, you know, multiple forms here. And so, you know, we don't just want to put down, you know, every single thing that occurs at the workplace, you're, you're probably being over-inclusive uh, yeah, in that okay. case. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to miss ones that, that should go on there. Brent, um, you said something really important, and I don't want to go too far down this path, but just the difference between OSHA requirements and an OSHA reportable injury versus workers' comp. Those are two separate things, but there's overlap because it's about safety and injuries. Can, can, what, how should employers be thinking about the differences about how these are separate things? Right. Well, you know, I, I would just tell employers that consider, you know, do, you know, let's say the employee, you know, is on workers' comp or makes a workers' comp claim. Keep that separate, right? We're going to analyze the OSHA recordable injury and you know, what we need to do under OSHA entirely separate, right? We're going to look at was this injury caused, contributed to, or aggravated uh, by, you know, a work-related event? Um, and then does it, you know, fit the, you know, type of injury that, that OSHA requires? So, yeah, what I would say is keep the analyses, you know, completely separate that, you know, one doesn't necessarily imply the other, Um and so, you know, I, I think that that's important because, you know, OSHA doesn't, you know, OSHA is not concerned with what, you know, your state workers comp board, uh, you know, defines as, you know, a, a yeah. workers comp injury um, that doesn't make it, you know, OSHA recordable. Um, and so I think what, one more thing to note on this topic is that, you know, it's important, you know, from again, all employers, from offices to you know more hazardous work sites, that you sh companies should have an established written procedure for employees to report these work-related injuries. And OSHA finds that 
a reasonable rather, a reasonable procedure is one that isn't too burdensome, right? There aren't too many steps that generally, you know, it should be very quick and easy to report a workplace uh, injury. Um, and so, you know, that's important to have something, um, you know, in writing, right? That employers should know what the procedure is, that they should know they have the right to report workplace injuries, and that they know that, you know, they won't be subject to retaliation or discrimination for reporting a workplace injury. So, that makes sense. you know, those are, you know, we always talk about policies. It's important to have, you know, policies relating to, you know, reporting of injuries. So, Brian, for, for record keeping, I've got the Form 300, I've got the 300A, and I've got the 301. Um, those are require uh, OSHA requirements where I log and track injuries. Um, You've recommended, I don't think it's required by OSHA, but also recommended that we do record keeping around training, right? Training and enforcement. And so, hey, we rolled this out. Here's the class we had. Here's the content, uh, summary of the content. Uh, and here's who was invited. Here's who attended. Here's who missed. Some type of note keeping. Do I have a right that that's not an OSHA requirement, but certainly it's a recommended best practice? Right. I think for in general, it's not a requirement. There might be some specific instances when it is, but right. Generally, not necessarily. But yeah, anytime you're doing training and this is OSHA or otherwise, a uh, good idea to have it recorded because you're, you're doing the training for some purpose. And, you know, if some related incident occurs, whether, you know, it's, it's OSHA related or anything else we can think of, yeah. uh, it's good to establish that there has been that training. All right. So last topic uh, that I want to go through is penalties. Um, is there anything else on uh, reporting documentation required by OSHA that we need to talk first? No, I, I think the, the, the only other thing I would mention is that these three forms we discussed, that those are forms that an employee can request to view at any time. Okay. And so, you know, the log, for instance, of all of all those uh, recordable injuries, that's something that I believe it needs to be produced to the employee within uh, one, one day, right? The following day uh, that they request it, it needs to be made available to them. So, you know, these are things that, uh, you know, many, you know, this is kind of an anomaly, right? Most records employers keep are, you know, the company's records, like, you know, personnel files and you know, most states, uh, those aren't required to be shown to employees. Uh, but for OSHA, uh, these logs and, you know, incident, you know, for instance, an incident report should only be shown to the employee who the incident is about. But the logs and summary of the logs, the 300 and 300A, any employee can request to see those. Got it. So, okay. Uh, um, that obviously, that makes it you know, very important to keep them an employee who learns they're not kept might then report that to OSHA, then you're, you're dealing with, you know, a compliance issue. Right. Something that, so before, last thing before we go to penalties, um, and I should have covered in the top of the hour, I believe I know the answer to this, but I wanted to just make it crystal clear. So many HR laws are dependent on, sometimes it's industry. Some, some industries have different overtime rates. Um, sometimes it's based on size. So, uh, whether you have to comply with COBRA 
whether you have to comply with uh, the Affordable Care Act depends on how many employees you have. OSHA doesn't care. You have one employee, you must provide a safe work environment, right? Absolutely. So that's where their, their catch-all is the general duty clause, right? Where essentially, you know, an employer violates this general duty clause if, you know, the employer fails to, uh, you know, make its workplace free of hazards and there's a hazard in the workplace that is either recognized by the employer or in their industry and the hazards likely to cause or has caused, you know, death or serious physical harm. And that, you know, the hazard could have otherwise been, you know, material re materially reduced or eliminated uh, by some, you know, feasible means of abatement. So that's the catch-all that applies to any employer. And yeah. then, right, then for some other industries, there are additional, you know, compliance, there are additional standards for, right, we've talked about construction industry, right? There's going to be standards about right. scaffolding, right, and things like that. Uh, so even if you're an employer that's not subject to any of those specific industry standards, that general duty clause applies to you regardless of the number of uh, employees you have. And, you know, it, it's something that requires an assessment of the workplace to see what those hazards are, understanding not only what you see, but what industry recognized standards are in your particular industry and, you know, taking, you know, reasonable steps to, uh, you know, to eliminate or reduce those hazards. Last thing I want to talk uh, Brian is, is penalties and consequences, and we're not. I don't want to. I don't want to unnecessarily scare anybody, um, but I also want to just be get 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 real. So, um, how this is one of those things that I think so many people again. If you're if you work around hazardous materials, you're in construction. You know, this is kind of a way of life for you. You probably already know the, a lot of this, this stuff, and, and and you live it out. But it's who whom I worry more for are maybe uh, industries, uh, uh, businesses that operate maybe a little more on the fringe and think, oh, I'm a little white collar. I'm, you know, yeah, of course, if somebody fall, I got to I, I can't have snags in my carpet where people fall. But this stuff doesn't really apply to me. I'm just going to, you know, I don't need an emergency action plan. That just seems like overkill. Um, I, I do want you to unpack for us what what are the consequences if you get it wrong if if God forbid there is an actual injury maybe there's not an, a, a, a terrible injury but you get reported and what fines might look like help, help us understand the context absolutely so yeah so I'll start with you know in 20 I believe in 2020 or 2021 the uh, OSHA conducted over 24,000 inspections, right? And wow. you know, not all result in citations, but many of them do. And so if OSHA determines that an employee is exposed to a hazardous condition, right? And it doesn't need to cause harm. It may be one that is likely to cause harm. Um, then it will issue a citation. Uh, and that's going to be something in writing. And uh, Citations are generally, you know, issued within six months of the occurrence of a violation, and they're they're they go in terms of seriousness. So, the lowest level violation is a de minimis violation, right? And you know, it's it's really not even a citation. It's just a notice of this violation. There was no direct or immediate relationship to safety or health, and there are no monetary penalties for that. That's the that's the one that's not so scary. 
but then you have serious violations and other than serious violations. And each violation of those uh, comes with a maximum penalty of $15,625. So that's where there's a substantial probability that death or physical, serious physical harm could result from whatever condition OSHA has identified um, or a practice or a method or you know, operations, whatever it might be. Um, but then the real bad ones, right, are the willful and repeat violations. Uh, a willful violation or a repeat violation carries a maximum penalty of $156,000 uh, and 200, actually $156,259. Uh, so that's, that's a whole lot. Um, you know, willful <laughs> violation is going to be shown when the employer acts with intentional disregard to OSHA requirements. So that might be the situation we discussed where, you know, someone gets seriously injured during an evacuation and it turns out the company has no emergency action plan, right? That might be something that's willful because they've disregarded. It was a free for all. Everyone was running out of the facility, um, you know, and people got trampled. That's, you know, that, that would be, you know, a will, willful violation potentially. Uh, you know, and also the repeat violations, if there's a, a previous citation for a similar type of violation and generally within the past five years, you'll, you know, the company will get hit with that $156,000 uh, maximum penalty. Of course, it could be lower based on circumstances, um, but they can go after that, that maximum uh, amount. Um, there's also, if there's an imminent danger if OSHA, you know, sees something and, you know, it is just, you know, like we said, like, you know, there's electrical, you know, wires exposed and they are getting wet yeah. and we see sparking, you know, something horrible like that, where there is an immediate, you know, risk that someone is going to get electrocuted or harmed. They can just forego their normal procedures and go into federal court to get an injunction uh, against the company, unless the company, you know, voluntarily agrees to, you know, immediately, you know, uh, you know, abate that, uh, that condition. Um, yeah. and then, Brian, yeah, so there, there are serious penalties here. Brian, how does, uh, how do these things usually show up in, uh, as investigations? So clearly there are higher risk, uh, industries, right? Uh, road construction, roofing that you're going to have, you should, it's reasonable to expect, at an undetermined frequency, an OSHA inspector is going to just show up on the job site, right? Um, and so that's probably why most folks are somewhat prepared for that. It, it also, I mean, this is not legal advice, but it's also probably pretty reasonable because I mean, I've never seen it in my career where an OSHA inspector comes into a white collar office and, you know, says, hey, I'm doing an inspection. Um, therefore, my, my fear is lulling white collar industries and businesses to sleep about the what the actual risk is here um if it's like an overtime or a minimum wage these things often are you know it's an employee a disgruntled employee former employee who makes a report maybe it's the department of labor maybe a, an attorney files suit on their behalf how do these how do these things usually manifest uh for right. is it simply whether you do or don't get inspected or are there other means? 
Right. No, excellent question. So there absolutely are, you know, targeted inspections on certain industries, but those are actually the minority of inspections OSHA does. So uh, of those 24,000 plus OSHA ins uh, inspections uh, in, in prior year that I discussed, uh, the majority, I believe 57% of those were not targeted, meaning they arose because of an employee complaint, uh, a referral from maybe work, you know, workers comp, right? You know, an employee reports an injury to workers comp and it, it's pretty clear that there might be a workplace condition cover, you know, that OSHA would be interested in, uh, or, it, you know, in an inspection, it can occur when you have, you know, a serious injury or a fatality. So, yeah, there are, you know, many ways that, you know, an office while, right, your typical white collar office is not not likely to be subjected to a uh, targeted inspection. The majority of inspections are not that way. So it's going to yeah. be a complaint and OSHA will just show up on site, right? Similar to, you know, a DOL auditor, you know, for wage and hour purposes and you know, they are, you know, allowed to come in there, you know, with no advance notice. And, you know, they're going to, you know, there's usually a process, there's an opening conference when they'll, you know, discuss, you know, what the scope of the inspection is, the need for interviews, a walkthrough, review of records, then, then they'll do the site evaluation and walk around and then, you know, possibly interview employees. Um, review documents and, and other things that, that might be relevant. And then they'll, they'll close the investigation and, you know, make their, make their findings. Uh, so it's very important to understand that for employers, right? Because even if you're a white collar, you know, office, uh, you know, do you know what to do when an OSHA inspector shows up, right? You know, someone yeah. should from, you know, from management should be with that inspector the whole time, you know, when they're walking around doing the evaluation yeah. and the inspector is taking photos, someone from the company should be taking photos. Uh, yeah. So there's a, you know, you don't just allow them to go in and, you know, get on with it. You want to follow them around, ask, you know, that the main tip I would give any employer, regardless of industry, when an OSHA inspector is on site doing an inspection, ask questions. You know, ask, you know, about the scope, about what they're looking for, about issues, absolutely ask questions and also make the inspector follow the workplace safety standards, right? If a hard hat's required, make them wear a hard hat. If, yeah. you know, there's employee screening, you know, make them go through that screening. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're generally allowed to go in and, you know, uh, inspect as they see, you know, of course, if they go outside the scope of the inspection, the company can try to rein them back in uh, through, you know, discussing that with them. Uh, but yeah, you know, if they see other things, right, if they're, if the inspector is there for one purpose, but they see, you know, some other hazards, they're going to address those as well. Yeah. Maybe the last thing I would maybe add, just add for, for guidance and I'll, and I'll let you close then, Brian. Um, whatever our topics we talk in this show, so we talk about a lot, a lot of HR compliance stuff. Um, and, and, and the goal is to give the best information we can so you can stay compliant, so you can build great teams and grow your business. Um, 
a lot of times people make mistakes. They don't follow the law and it's almost never on purpose. It's not people, you know, I hate that law. That's a stupid law. I'm choosing to not follow it. It's, it's, it's unwittingly not following laws because the HR laws are so darn complex and they're changing so fast and there's more and more of them uh, every, every day. Um, and the reality is if you treat your employees really well and they know you, love you, trust you and think that you have their back and their best interest in mind, um, you're going to get a lot of latitude from employees. Uh, uh, and, and they, if they think they're being wronged or they think they're in an unsafe work environment, they're probably going to tell you about it and give you opportunity to remedy the situation. Um, but it just, this just screams for this. And I keep thinking about all of the white er collar type jobs where employers might not realize how much risk they have. That's, that was a really important stat that you shared, Brian, 57% are not the result of a, a, a random inspection from an, an OSHA uh, inspector. They're, they're coming out of other, the result of injuries or worse comp cases and whatnot, but also disgruntled employees. If a disgruntled employee uh, goes into the break room and there's a switch plate that is cracked and you can maybe see some exposed wires. I mean, I've walked into businesses that you can just, you can just tell that thing has been there for years, right? And it's not okay. It's going to be an OSHA violation. But if all the employees love and trust and respect you and you're highly communicative and you and you show them respect, they're probably going to at least tell you, hey, could you fix that? That makes me feel really uncomfortable versus just arms crossed. I hate my boss. I'm going to go report this sucker. And all of a sudden, you got a, a, an inspector at your door for something that was a 57-cent switch plate at Home Depot. Um so to, to me, compliance is compliance, and hopefully this is a helpful uh, uh, hour-ish conversation for folks to take OSHA seriously, understand what it is. Uh, at the end of the day, the best thing you can do to stay compliant is to have great relationships with your employees so that when things aren't perfect, you can work on it together and get them fixed. Brian, is there any, anything else specific, maybe comment on that or specific on OSHA that you'd want to close with today? Yeah, I'll be brief, but yeah, absolutely. So I think the key is, you know, like you said, if you're going to have, uh, you know, a good relationship with employees, <coughs> excuse me, then, you know, one of the things is keeping them safe. And, you know, addressing workplace hazards is very important. Um, <clears throat> and it can, it can be as little as, you know, a clean place to eat or clean bathrooms, right? Those are covered. Um, so if you're a company that doesn't think this applies to you, you know, think again, it very much does. Um, and it pays to, uh, to take these compliance steps. Yeah. Brian, uh, who knew you could, we could talk so long about OSHA. I know there's a lot there, but uh, it, the thing I hope everybody walks away with is it doesn't matter how big you are, what industry you are, where you are located, OSHA applies to everybody uh, and uh, reiterate that stat. 57% of all uh, OSHA uh, investigations uh, are not the result of some random audit where you got an OSHA inspector shows up at your door unannounced. It's the result of an injury that happened in your workplace, whether it was a work comp claim or somebody reported you uh, that comes in from a different direction. So. We have to provide safe work environments for our employees. We need to do it in a compliant way. 
in, uh, in a way that shows respect to the employees to give us opportunity to remedy situations uh, before they get ugly and all of a sudden you're getting issued fines uh, for, for non-compliance. So, Brian, always love talking to you. Thanks for joining me today and thanks for everybody else for sticking with us. We went a little bit over on time, so I really appreciate it. Uh, until next week's show, we will see you later. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.